We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Congrats to Team Canada on their first World Cup appearance in decades. Lots to build on. It's only Budweiser. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, do you get your snow tires on yet? You better if you don't uh, already have them. And you know, he had one of those falls where... Honestly, it didn't look like um, fall was ever going to come. Uh, just before the weather got cold, I think we had a weekend that was near 20 degrees. So uh, an incredibly beautiful fall. But again, the calendar does not lie. And when it comes, it comes. And uh, certainly uh, they're experiencing that in Vancouver. And, you know, I mean, it, it's good when you think about it. It gets us in the Christmas spirit. Uh, don't forget, 900CHML.com. All the details on how you can help us help the kids tomorrow. Uh, we kick off Blix. Uh, Blitz weekend when we like to see HML Tree of Hope on uh, Atgore Park, rather, and uh, Mixmaster Jim going to be joining us there for the broadcast from 3 until 7, and then uh, all weekend long at Lime Ridge Mall as well. And uh, don't forget, lots of ways for you to help us help the kids. 900CHML.com, texting, uh, various uh, toy drives and such. Uh, We'll go through that a little later on, but uh, all the details are on the website at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, In case you haven't noticed, uh, well, last week it was, or a while ago it was Buffalo. They got nailed. Mind you, that was... That was crippling snow. Uh, Vancouver got dinged with snow the other night and uh, not something that they normally see in those parts. And, of course, uh, what happens when you get some snow and then the temperature plummets, uh, it creates uh, uh, just a hectic situation on the roads and highways and byways of the land. To get an update on where Vancouver is, let's bring in Christy Gordon, the senior meteorologist, Global BC, and is with us now. Christy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. <laughs> Thank you. I am. So how bad was it? Um, you know, some people here in Ontario are going, come on, uh, what are you guys complaining about? But on the other hand, this isn't the norm for you. So tell us exactly what the situation's been like for the last day or so. Well, it's been um, it's been rather busy here in the weather department, that's for sure. But it always is a case when we have snow events here across the south coast. You know, I was just chatting with a friend of mine who's from Calgary, who, similarly to you, um, you know, deal with snow events on a regular basis through winter. And um, he's been here in uh, the South Coast area for many years now, and he said, you know, the snow is just different when it comes here across the South Mm. Coast. Not only are we not used to it, but it tends to be more of a slippery mess. It's not a a dry, sort of more compact snow. It's slippery, it's slushy, We, we fluctuate from above Really, like it, that's what happens during a snow event. We can just have a shift in temperature by one degree, goes up to one, and then it gets all uh, melty, and then it drops to minus one, and then it freezes. So we can get these types of scenarios that are really tricky around here. And I know probably a lot of you listeners out east are rolling your eyes right now, but it's true. No, I, I completely understand what you're saying, especially if you're hovering around the freezing mark there and you don't know which way it's going to go. Is this, um, it, it, how common is this for Vancouver? How common is it for Vancouver to get snow? Oh, I mean, we, we get snow events um, throughout the year. You know, we may get anywhere from, it depends on the year. La Nina is what we're experiencing right now. And uh, we sometimes, during La Nina years, depending on where that freezing level is, we could get, you know, multiple events during a, a year, you know, 10, 12, for example. So it certainly happens. It's just that, um, as we mentioned, it's that tricky type of snow where it's, you know, are we going to get rain? Are we going to get snow? Are we going to get freezing rain? Uh, we're always on the verge, and it, it makes it quite tricky. The the event that happened just this past uh, evening where it was a complete mess on the roads, uh, that was really unfortunate because it was one that we had been forecasting. The forecast actually turned out really well, meaning that we knew that there was going to be significant snow. The snow came, and it came at the time we were expecting. But uh, you, you get it during rush hour, and maybe people weren't listening because this is the first snow event of the year, and it was just a mess out there. There were people stuck on the roads for 8 to 12 hours. It was mm. really quite something. And what about the debate about snow tires? Does that all of a sudden have to become a discussion out there? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's always a discussion out here. We now have it uh, as part of our mandate um, for all mountain passes from the yeah. beginning of October through to the end of uh, April that you are now required to have snow tires. If you're driving the mountain passes, you'll get fined if you don't. But there's nothing in place for Metro Vancouver. The suggestion or recommended uh, uh, thing is that at any time that the temperature drops below seven degrees, it's recommended that you have some kind of a all-season or winter tire, but there's nothing... Uh, nothing required at this time, which I don't know. I don't know if it's because some some people can't afford it, and so I always feel yeah. badly if that's a requirement. But so, what does it look like in the next few days? What does it look like? Uh, what's your forecast for for Vancouver for the winter? Well, I tell you, I am. I am. I've been going all morning on this latest forecast. We've got uh, another chance for snow tomorrow. And it likely will push in towards the, again, afternoon, evening hours, during a commute, uh, during a, a period where maybe families are traveling. And so this is a really tricky one. And it's not as, um, the forecast is not as confident as the one that we had last time because the system is actually just skirting the coast. We're just on the eastern edge. So, you know, a slight track towards the east and we could get 10 centimeters of snow, slight track towards the, the west and we may not get anything. So we're really just trying to hone in on the details as best we can and warning everyone um, of the possibility and the worst case scenario. And I, I don't know, I guess when you think back to the, this conversation about whether to, to have snow tires, I think more so what I would recommend instead of requiring people to have snow tires is to maybe put it uh, to our politicians just to say, you know, if we have a potential snow event, that it is something that, you know, soccer practices and hockey games don't happen. Everyone just stay mm. home just for tonight. <laughs> something like that. All right, Christy Gordon with a senior meteorologist on Global British Columbia and the snow event they are having out there as they sort of sit between that freezing market and around that freezing market. And, and you, we all know what that can be like. Christy, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. All right, let's move on. We talked about this earlier on in the week uh, with the those that are involved at McMaster University, uh, but the Canadian Space Agency, through the Canadian CubeSat project, is providing professors in post-secondary institutions an opportunity to engage their students in real space missions. Uh, as you already know, and we talked about, uh, university teams, including one from Mac, are preparing for the launch of their CubeSats. Uh, what is the purpose behind this? What's the objective? Let's bring in Tony Pellerin, manager in space science and technology at the Canadian Space Agency, and is with us now. Tony, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you. So tell us about this project. What's the objective here? All right, so this, the Canadian CubeSat project is a goal number one is to train students to understand how we do stuff for space. All right, so it's a project that started a three years ago, and the goal was to have university participation across the country from coast to coast and having university team building CubeSat. Uh, so starting from designing, building, testing, and launching. So right now we're at the phase where we're integrating the CubeSat for a, a upcoming launch, and then it'll be followed by a operation of the CubeSat. So, but the goal number one was really to train students on understanding how we build and do stuff for space. And these are basically small satellites. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. Actually, they are very tiny satellites. They're the size about 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters is what we call one unit. It's about the size of a Rubik cube. And then mm. if you need more power or more volume for your instrument, you can stack those up and you can build them up. Uh, and then they become like either 2U or 3U. And the McMaster University uh, CubeSat is actually a 2U CubeSat. So it's 10 by 10 by 20 centimeters. And so uh, do you decide what these satellites or the experiments they will include or do the individual universities figure out which area of study they're going in or are they all the same? No, they're not all the same. Actually, they're quite different from one to the other. And the ID came from the university as a proposal of we think we can do this and this is the type of science we want to do. And they were accepted and uh, they received money from CSA to build those CubeSats. And uh, reaching the end of it, where actually McMaster was integrated in the Nanorack deployer a couple minutes ago. So it, it's a great success for them. Uh, and what's the advantage of bringing the universities into projects like this? Well, goal number one, as I said, is HQP training. So they get to learn how to 
built stuff for space. So when they reach the market, uh, the home market, and the um, actually the work market, I mean, they're ready for, to to enter the space industry. So the the learning curve is not as steep as if they had not worked on a project like this. So this is sort of the final stage of testing for these products. Would that be accurate? That's really accurate. So the final test is actually what we call a fit check to make sure that they're going to fit in what we call the deployer that will be launched to the ISS. And then eventually the CubeSat will be deployed in space from the ISS, so the International Space Station. Uh, so give us an idea. We were talking to Mac earlier on in the week, and I believe theirs was in and around radiation, their experiments around radiation and how it affects uh, uh, people uh, who will be traveling, say, in space stations or uh, in Journey to the Moon and Mars and beyond. Give us an example of what some of the other universities are studying. Yeah, we have universities that are actually sending uh, a camera that will do art observation. We have other universities that are sending instrument that would actually measure the earth magnetic uh, field. Uh, we have another university that is sending a geological sample and they will measure the effect of the harsh environment of space on those samples. So it, it varies from one team to the other. So it's quite impressive. Wow, this is like the ultimate lab. Uh, what's this experience like for the students? Because I remember even talking to uh, one of the people from Mac. I was saying just even hanging out at the Canadian Space Agency, that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, I wish I had that kind of a um, project when I was in university because I have <laughs> to admit that it's very exciting, not only for them, but for a lot of us here at CSA. So honestly, it's it's not easy, all right? So uh, we have to be frank. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a long process. They, they work very hard. They work late at night. And, uh, and when we reach a milestone like we have this week of integrating with Nanorack for a launch, I mean, these guys have been running like crazy in the lab to make sure that the CubeSat is ready. So it's, it's but the reward of having a CubeSat in space and participating in such an exciting project is so great for them. We can actually feel the excitement in the lab right now. Uh, that, that's incredible. I, I'm, I'm, we can feel it just in the conversation we're having with you. What about the rejection? Because again, as you said, this isn't this isn't building Lego here. Um, there's obviously a certain amount of trial and error. Correct. So this is where the CSA expertise comes in. We want to make sure that these guys will succeed. So it's not a question that we gave them the money and then we'll see you in two years with the CubeSat. So we follow the project all along to make sure that the success rate will be maximum. And so far, so good. We actually had a launch last Saturday of the first two CubeSats of that Canadian CubeSat initiative. So they are at the ISS right now and they will be deployed uh, very shortly. And now this is what we call batch number two. So we have right now four CubeSat that are being integrated for an upcoming launch. And at the end of March, we're going to have the remind, uh, remainder of the uh, university team that didn't make it for batch two integrated. And my job is to make sure that they're going to succeed. So trust me, we're, we're everybody's working hard on this. And uh, is this going to be an ongoing or is it an ongoing project? Yeah, the success of CCP, which was actually a project, was uh, so great that the Canadian Space Agency decided to repeat the experience, and now they made it a program. So it'll be a recurring program that every two years we're going to call for proposal, and we just had the recent uh, proposal closed out, and we received tons of proposals from the university that will be evaluated, and it's called Cubics. Where do you go from here? Because obviously uh, everyone's learned so much to this point. How do you expand on this? Where can this go? Well, now the CCP, CubeSat project, was launched entirely from the ISS. And the inclination of the ISS make it so that the CubeSat won't go over the polar orbit. So to expand a bit more in terms of science, in the next batch, we're going to open the door of launching CubeSat not from the ISS, but really from a, a different rocket, a different system, but they will be allowed to reach higher inclination orbit, so they'll be able to do more science over the north region of Canada, for example. So that's it. And we also expand the, the size limit of the CubeSat, so they, they would potentially go up to 6U, so slightly bigger, so they have more room and more power to get a bigger instrument. 
Keep up on the math and sciences, kids. It's pretty exciting. The Canadian Space Agency, through the Canadian CubeSat project, uh, involving universities in getting their experimentation up into space. In this case, a small uh, CubeSat uh, Cube satellite. Tony Pellerin with us, manager in space science and technology, Canadian Space Agency. Fascinating stuff, uh, Tony, and paying it forward to the next generation. Good luck. Congratulations. My pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, some uh, royal flapping going on again as um, I believe William and Kate are in Boston uh, right now. Uh, Prince William's godmother, who also served as the late Queen Elizabeth's lady-in-waiting, has stepped down after she made a racist and, quote, unacceptable comment uh, or comments to a black guest at Buckingham Palace. Uh, this person had served for the, or with the queen, for the queen rather, for more than 60 years and had stayed on in an honorary role to support King Charles. That ended on Wednesday after she made unacceptable and deeply regrettable comments uh, regarding a British-born anti-domestic violence advocate during a reception hosted by Camilla. To talk more about all of this, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert and closet royal watcher, she is with us now. <laughs> Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I guess you're not in the closet. You're very open and public about all of this. Yeah, I'm very open and public, Scott, and I was waiting for that intro, and I'm glad you did not disappoint. There you go. So what are your thoughts here at first blush uh, of, of what has happened? Oh, my, oh, my. You know, it, it's interesting. When when um, Meghan, uh, when she married Harry and the, and the uh, fallout after that, was talking about racism within or veiled racism, racism uh, within the palace. We all sort of thought, well, maybe, is it true? But, you know, when you start to hear accounts like this, you now begin to see some credence to all of that. And, you know, I was reading the comments on one of the articles, uh, actually in the Washington Post, and people are saying, well, she's in her 80s, for heaven's sakes, what do you expect? But you know what? I think that we can't simply brush that behavior under the rug. I think the palace did the exact right thing in uh, dismissing this person from her duties, if not to send a few messages. Number one, uh, we won't tolerate uh, innuendo such as that. And number two, we feel that this person is no longer worthy of being in our employ because we want to be seen better than that and we need to rise above it. So the palace acted in the exact right manner in this case. So I was going to ask you where the line is, but I'm guessing the line is when this person asked what part of Africa that she was from. Um, Just assuming that because she was black, she was an English born. Well, I think it was sort of a barrage of questions and that it wasn't. um, They sort of kept coming. Well, it sort of kept coming. And, and, you know, I was reading this woman's um, Twitter post and it was quite telling. So firstly, um, I think her name is Lady Susan Hussey approaches her and her this woman's hair is covering her name tag. And she reaches and she brushes this woman's hair aside to read the name tag. You know, that unto itself, you know, mm. touching somebody and... Um, coming into their space and 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 removing their hair so you can read a name tag maybe have been okay mm. 50 years ago, but I, you just don't do that now, not to anybody. Yeah. And it wasn't, until you know, the woman kept saying, you know, I'm a British national. She's going, no, 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 where are your people from? No, 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 what nationally, nationality are you? And maybe she was trying to do it in a way of creating conversation or getting to the bottom of her curiosity. But with each subsequent question, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And until at the very last, uh, Lady Susan Hussey says, oh, I knew we'd get there in the end. You're Caribbean. And the woman replies, no, lady, I am of African heritage, Caribbean descent and British. And that is really the crux of it. Scott, I think that there, you know, many, many decades ago, and it's not even many decades ago, obviously this is still happening, where people weren't seen to be Canadian enough or British enough because you didn't look like everybody else. So obviously we still all have a long way to go. You know, I remember my mother. My mother, uh, my mother is uh, was an immigrant. I'm first generation Canadian, but and and she had a thick accent. And every time she heard anybody with an accent, the first thing she would say is, "Oh, where are you from?" Um, what's the difference between that and what we're seeing now? The difference between that, what I think your mom was trying to do was create connection. 
yeah. um, as being a an immigrant to a new country by hearing an accent, uh, by saying, "Oh, where are you from?" Um, yeah, you know, I think that 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 is coming from the heart. That is looking for connection to a shared experience. The difference between that, what your mom would ask, and what this is, was actually getting past this woman who is clearly black and calls herself British, but that answer wasn't good enough. And that mm. is the problem with all of this. How does that, uh, considering where Harry and Megan are, Harry and Megan are, how does that fit into all this discussion? Well, I'm sure they're sitting in, in California chuckling. <laughs> I mean, mm. and, and Megan with her arms crossed, looking at Harry from across uh, the breakfast table at coffee going, see, see, yeah. So I, I, I think that, you know, whether you love or hate Megan, I think that when you hear about things like this, that and this puts the palace very much in reactive mode. And here is, you know, Camilla, the new queen consort, trying to, you know, forge her way um, onto the public scene and create notoriety and resonance of what she stands for by holding a reception about, um, you know, creating uh, yeah. awareness about women and violence. And here you have this take away from that so it's almost like one step forward scott and then two steps back and some of this is inevitable you can't predict this is going to happen but by dismissing lady susan hussey you're saying you're taking that off the plate and hoping that nobody else within the firm will fall in, mm. into that trap. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert with a side of Royal on the uh, with a side plate of Royal just to keep us. I don't know where this is going. I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> Alyssa, as always, see, the intro is good, but the extra sucked. Uh, Alyssa, thanks so much as always for the time. Be well. Ta-ta for now, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. It's been a while since we've talked about uh, former president, U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, whether it's uh, the, the uh, searching for his tax records or uh, his former real estate or his real estate company and their issues, uh, or even the January 6th uh, committee situation. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Let's start with January 6th, the committee. Where is this now, uh, especially with the midterms? Is that going to change anything with the results there? Well, uh, on a couple of fronts here, the January 6th committee uh, has likely finished uh, its investigatory work. Uh, one of the representatives who was on that committee, Zoe Lofgren, was on CNN today and made a point of saying that they held their final interview yesterday uh, with a uh, with a Wisconsin state official based on a phone call uh, that he had held with uh, with the former president linked to the 2020 election. Meaning that uh, if interviews are done, then all that's left to come is a final report. And the committee intends to have that report done sometime in the next couple of weeks, obviously understanding that at the very beginning of January, a new Congress is going to be in place. So they are up against a clock. Uh, anything we likely to find out anything more than we already haven't found out? Well, eventually we'll find out uh, uh, everything because the committee says that whatever they have done when it comes to this investigation, uh, they fully intend to not only put it into a report, which, you know, uh, you know, is a bit of an offside here. Uh, there's been some criticism that the report will solely focus on the former president or at least heavily focus on him and not on the failures that took place to protect the Capitol on January 6th. But outside of that, uh, the, the public will be able to access the information uh, based on what was done over the last several months with the exception of personal information to people who came forward. Uh, and this will be the same information that is also presented to, according to the committee, the uh, Department of Justice, which could assist in any potential criminal referrals, which could also be made as early as tomorrow. Hmm. All right. So for years since uh, Donald Trump was elected, uh, lots of chatter about how he hasn't presented his tax returns. Most presidents, I guess all presidents have done that up until now. Uh, the House Ways and Means Committee has now has access to uh, records. What does this mean? Are we are we going to find out more here? 
Well, I mean, that's still to be seen. Uh, the committee hasn't said whether or not they're going to uh, make these uh, make any of this information public. Uh, a part of this was simply an exercise that's gone on for the last four years to try and obtain uh, the tax records from the former president. But in the four years since then, there's been reporting that's come out uh, from the New York Times. There have been various investigations into the president's um, uh, finances and his company's finances, where some of the information has been brought to public. Uh, still, the Ways and Means Committee has been uh, kind of working through this, this legal battle, which was essentially handed back to them when the U.S. Supreme Court said that it would not get in the way and it would not intervene. Uh, we don't know what's going to be made public with this uh, with this um, kind of uh, receiving of the tax documents. Uh, this simply could be uh, an exercise to show that this powerful committee in Congress does have an ability to access any private person's uh, tax returns and that presidents themselves shouldn't be able to shield information that Congress can get hold of. All right. Donald Trump's real estate company in issues with uh, uh, tax fraud and such. Where is this now? Where's this uh, this trial? Well, I mean, look, there's a couple of, of, of different investigations. There's the state level investigation uh, by the New York Attorney General, which is going forward, hundreds of uh, suing the, the, the Trump organization and people within uh, senior members of the Trump family. But the one that is underway federally, at least, uh, closing arguments uh, are underway. It's expected to wrap up tomorrow. A jury is likely to have this in their hands uh, by Monday. This is the Trump organization trying to fend off uh, these charges that they were improperly uh, hiding money by paying senior level employees uh, like CFO Alan Weisselberg as contractors to potentially hide money. Weisselberg himself has already uh, uh, kind of worked along with the feds. He will eventually go to jail for five months, but he himself has testified that it was about greed, uh, that he was doing this solely for himself. That is an argument the defense was making hmm. uh, as well. Uh, ultimately, though, uh, you know, the prosecutors are going to say that the Trump organization has carried out this kind of much larger fraud scheme. Uh, you know, when the jury gets it, ultimately, it will be up to them. Whatever happens to this, there are still several other investigations that the Trump organization is going to have to sift its way through. Uh, any of this likely to stick to Donald Trump? Are we seeing space between he, uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party? Is there distance growing there? Well, I mean, there's distance growing there, especially in the wake of that dinner that he had held with Kanye West uh, and Nick Fuentes, uh, a kind of self-avowed white supremacist. And there's kind of new revelations coming out of that based on a Kanye West interview that happened today. So members of the Republican Party are backing away from Donald Trump in that sense. I don't think uh, investigations into his finances or his company are going to kind of rattle the nerves of Republicans because they simply see these as partisan hits on the president as a way to try and get in his way of a potential uh, or what could potentially become the, the Republican nominee. I think the former president's biggest hurdles right now are trying to uh, ensure that he can stay on top for the next two years when he has someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis nipping at his heels. Uh, are these dinners uh, and these meetings that you're speaking of, is that the, um, uh, the ramp, the off ramp the Republican Party was looking for? Well, I mean, look, the former president's company has been questioned in the past and the Republicans haven't, you know, walked away from the president. Uh, and in fact, some more extreme members of the party have actually embraced him. We are seeing a more vocal pushback. But again, the wording is very delicately used here to ensure uh, that they potentially don't get in the way of their base. But at the end of the day, I mean, these are are kind of vile comments coming from people that the president is associating himself with as he tries to walk himself back and ensure that, you know, it's in writing that he doesn't quite know who these people are. At the end of the day, they were at Mar-a-Lago. They were sitting with the former president. And the Republican Party is now going to have to grapple with whether they want to continue lining up behind, you know, the leader that's been there for the last few years, years or potentially start to shift themselves away, because this ultimately is an incredibly damaging moment for the former president that he's going to have to try to be able to walk away from. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right. Lots of chatter about the uh, new uh, Canadian Dental Benefit is what it's called, CDB, Canadian Dental Benefit. Uh, this obviously part of the deal with the NDP and uh, the Liberals to keep them in power uh, many, many months ago. And now this has uh, finally come out. The Liberal government's new dental care benefit for children is now open to applications to get help for covering kids' dental costs. Eligible parents with kids under 12 who don't otherwise have dental care coverage can go online 
line as of today to apply for the new Canada Dental Benefit, uh, one of two new benefits contained in Bill C-31. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Lisa Bentley with us, President of the Ontario Dental Association, and is here now. Doctor, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Thank you. I'm well. Thank you. So your thoughts on this um, uh, Canada Dental Benefit? Um, many dentists say, hey, anything that gets the kids in the chair is good. Uh, is this the best way to implement it? What are your thoughts so far? Well, we're really excited when government invests in oral health care and recognizes the importance of oral health to overall health. So this is a great start. Um, it's an interim program, and um, we're really hoping that we can see some of these kids that really need to be seen. Uh, you talked about this being a start, uh, you know, a starting point. What what would you like to see? How can this be refined over time? Well, we really want to make sure that we're at the table to help the federal government implement this program, to design a program that makes the best use of taxpayers' dollars and design something that will really improve access to care and help the patients um, be seen in a very comfortable way. Uh, we heard the Prime Minister say, you know, it, there's some impossible choices that have to be made when you're in this situation and you're trying to put food on the table, uh, let alone get the kids uh, to the dentist, and sometimes, you know, impossible choices have to be made here. Are you convinced that when this money does arrive that it will be used to take kids to the dentist, considering the situation that many are in? Well, we're definitely hopeful. Um, unfortunately, about 66,000 Ontarians have to visit hospital emergency rooms to be seen for dental problems. And, you know, when they see a, when they go to the hospital emergency room, all they have received is a painkiller and antibiotic. Right. If they could attend a dental office, this could make a big difference, even in our health care system, by not clogging up the emergency rooms. Uh, again, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and, and, and I don't think too many Canadians would disagree with it. Dental care is a big part of, of our overall health, and everybody should have access to that as we do. Um, I, my question is, is this the right way to go about doing it? Are you convinced this is, this is going to work? Well, it is a start. You know, yeah. in Ontario, we have five government programs, and the programs that deal with the children for children 18 and under is Healthy Smiles Ontario. And it is chronically underfunded. So the federal government has stepped in to have some interim relief, but the Ontario government has to step in as well and fix its programs. Currently, the dentists of Ontario are supplementing these programs by paying $150 million out of their own pockets to shore them up so that these patients can be seen. Uh, I've had this discussion with the former head of the Canadian Dental Association, and you know he brought up the same thing, um, saying that. Uh, and, and again, these these problems go pro- go countrywide, just as the the, the healthcare uh, system and, and just as the healthcare uh, problems go countrywide. Um, and his question was at the time, uh, and again, anything that gets a kid in the chair is good, but why not feed those programs, give the money to those programs, and you know, basically saying that each province has good programs they're just not adequate adequate adequately funded whether it's from the province or the feds so why not feed those programs as opposed to just giving money to the families i guess is my question i think in ontario we don't have the confidence with um what's been happening with the provincial programs that the government would use that money to improve the programs so the ontario dental association was very happy that this was being federally administered um, you know, the, the most recent program that the provincial government released was the Senior Dental Care Program. It is a colossal failure. Uh, seniors that were eligible on this program had to travel to new dental offices. They, they weren't allowed to see their regular dentists. They had to be attend public health clinics or designated offices or dental buses, for that matter, travel far distances. And only 20% of the eligible seniors have actually received care under this program. Uh, so you think it's better just to give the money to the families? I do at this point, um, or to have a health spending account for patients. Um, this is an interim approach, but in Germany, for example, there's a health spending account for families, and it works very well. And uh, when will we know if this is a success? Will it take the two years to uh, of the trial of this to figure it out, or will we figure it out relatively early? 
Well, the government will have to find some methods to measure the success of the program. You know, maybe less visits to the hospital emergency room would be a good start. Um, you know, there's different ways that public health can measure dental decay when they do screenings in schools. So hopefully children with earlier access to dental care, it'll set them up for good oral health for their lives. And that's so important. So you, uh, and don't let me put words in your mouth here, doctor, uh, didn't have very much positive to say about the province's dental care plan, but you're convinced that the feds can do this better. Do you feel the same thing, same way about health care? Because, again, you know, as we're looking for new templates and newer ways to do things, I think it's important we move forward with that as opposed to moving backwards. Um, again, do you think that's the way it should be handled through the feds and, and go from there? I think when government is dealing with health care, they need to turn to the experts. So, for example, with the dental programs, the federal minister of health met with all the provinces and territorial dental association leaders, and they received input from us. The Ontario government hasn't done that with their programs, case in point, the seniors program, and they're, they're failing. If you don't involve the experts in designing these programs, the people who are going to administer the programs, they're not going to do well. So I think it's vital that government partners with the Ontario Dental Association or other health care associations to help them implement programs that are going to be successful. Uh, how do you think this, is this going to change or alter provincial programs in any way? Well, we're hoping that this actually puts a little pressure on the province to finally fix their programs. We've been lobbying for 15 years. You know, we've been asking for 15 years, can you please look at your programs? And they haven't. And it's been 15 years of neglect that's got these programs into the state they are today. All right, there you have it, Dr. Lisa Bentley, president of the Ontario Dental Association, talking about the new Canadian dental benefit. It goes into effect as of today, and people can apply on the Government of Canada website. It's the Canadian dental benefit. Dr. Lisa Bentley with us, president of the Ontario Dental Association. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, before the uh, last uh, provincial election, all four major political parties, whether you're the Green Party, whether you're the NDP, which was completely surprising, or the Liberals or the Conservatives, they all agreed they needed to build 1.5 million or 1 million homes, whatever, uh, which just absolutely blows me away. I've never seen that in my lifetime. Uh, and if all four parties have been talking that way maybe five or ten years ago, we would not have the problem uh, that we have right now. But Bill uh, 23 has passed, and um, the whole idea is to speed up construction of homes and uh, get her done, as they say. Uh, and one of the more controversial aspects of the bill is the freezing, uh, the reducing and exempting fees that developers pay, all right, that they pay for affordable housing, nonprofit housing and inclusionary zoning units, meaning affordable housing in new developments, as well as some rental units. So this isn't to all housing. It's to affordable housing, nonprofit housing, inclusionary zoning units, uh, as well as some rental units. It's still, uh, many are complaining, saying it will lead to higher property taxes, weakening of cons- uh, conservation authority powers, and will, uh, will not make uh, homes any more affordable. Uh, you know, uh, you just get so frustrated with this, just like you do with health care, because we all promise we would change things, and then we're doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And guess what? That's how we got to where we are. Um, let's talk about this and what it means to housing and development in Ontario with Mike Collins Williams. Sorry, Mike Collins Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association, and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Your thoughts about Bill 23 and those that say it's um, you're taking money away from the municipalities here that they normally get. It will lead to higher taxes, weakening of the conservation authority, and will not make housing any more affordable. Well, it's a bold plan, and uh, it's certainly not been without controversy. Um, and, you know, there's been some opposition to the plan to build more housing. But none of this should come as a surprise when local governments pile additional costs onto new home buyers 
and ignore their own planning staff recommendations when it comes to their official plans. So, you know, uh, we have been hearing a lot of noise about the provincial intervention, um, but I, I think it's expected uh, and councils sometimes don't want to lose local control, but if they can't problem properly for the long term, um, interventions required. Will they lose money? I mean, uh, obviously, these developers uh, pay these fees. They seem to have gone through the roof in the last little while. Have municipalities become dependent on these? Well, let's be crystal clear, and you did mention it in your preamble. The provincial government is not getting rid of development charges. There are some new exemptions proposed through Bill 23, and those apply to nonprofit and affordable housing providers and some reductions, not elimination, some reductions to attempt to incentivize the construction of rental housing, which we are woefully short of. And arguably the most vulnerable members of our society that desperately need more affordable housing, they shouldn't be having to pay the full freight of development charges. And those costs are all passed on. You know, if an affordable housing provider, whether it's Habitat for Humanity, Indwell, um, YWCA, there are a lot of great um, nonprofit housing providers. These costs come into the millions and millions of dollars to uh, that get added onto those costs. And a social good such as community housing, you know, it's it's not direct growth related capital. So um, I, I understand that there is a challenge going forward, but um, I, I get a little tired of count- hearing from politicians that we need more affordable housing. And the second the province makes a change so that they can't charge the full freight of taxes on affordable housing, um, they seem to be very upset. Do you think this message is getting out, Mike? Because, again, all we're hearing from municipalities and and from some media is that everything's going up uh, because of all of this. Once again, we're giving, you know, the provinces, Doug Ford's developer buddies, all this stuff. And and as you're explaining to it, and and accurately so, this, the the, the reduction or the drop of development charges is for low-income housing. It's for rental units. It's for affordable housing. It's not an across the board thing is that message getting out because i haven't really heard it much i think the message getting out has been somewhat convoluted because a lot of councils uh and not just in hamilton across southern ontario are, are concerned about losing some control and i think also in a somewhat inflationary environment a lot of councils are potentially looking at pretty big tax increases property yeah. tax increases and they're looking for a convenient scapegoat and they found one to point that, and that is the provincial government and the development industry. And what we're really talking about with Bill 23 is trying to get more affordable housing built by reducing the tax load on below market affordable housing, nonprofit housing, and yes, some market purpose built rental, which we desperately need. Um, and you know, as President Joe Biden once said, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. Well, if the city of Hamilton values affordable housing, then the infrastructure to support nonprofit and affordable housing should be funded broadly by the city of Hamilton. Hmm. Uh, We're skipping through a lot here, but can you shed any light on the issue around the green belt? Uh, Again, people are screaming and yelling that the green belt is being eaten into when it said that it wouldn't be eaten eaten into, although from what I understand, they're adding more at the other end. Uh, What are your thoughts? Again, I understand that there's uh, controversy. Um, You know, any time that there's any kind of uh, new housing, it seems whether we're growing out through boundary expansions, whether we're growing in through changes to neighborhood zoning to allow missing middle or gentle density. You know, there was an infamous uh, home to replace a garage on Hamilton Mountain that had protesters. Or growing up, um, Hamilton's going to have a whole new skyline in the coming years with much, much taller buildings coming. And I imagine that there will be protests around those as well. So we seem to be in an impossible situation in terms of the toxic nature of the housing discourse. That's exactly why we got into this place to begin with. And the provincial government is they're they're taking some heat, but they are being bold and they are trying to do everything that they can to bring more housing into the system. And just a little context from July, Canada's population is growing at an absolute historic rate. 
From July to September, our population grew by around 285,000 people. More than 700,000 people have been added in the past year across Canada. That's more than the entire population of Hamilton. These people need to live somewhere. Yeah. And some of them want to have that single family home. And some of them want to live in a high rise. We're trying to provide options. And unfortunately, the politics around it have uh, become virtually impossible. And as you said, that's how we got here. Uh, Mike Collins-Williams with us, CEO West End Home Builders Association, talking about Bill 23, which is geared more towards uh, uh, dropping development charges on lower-income housing and rental properties, not right across the board. Mike, thanks for the time and clarity. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for the opportunity. Happy to chat housing anytime. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You might remember the name uh, Daniel Smith. We used to actually simulcast the show with her when she was working uh, for Chorus Radio out in Calgary. And uh, we'd often do simulcasted shows where they would basically just hammer us for not uh, hammer us for not knowing anything about the West or the energy industry out there or so on and so forth. Uh, uh, Daniel Smith gave up her career in radio and went into politics and is now the premier of Alberta and has a new sovereignty within uh, United Canada Act that uh, I guess initially introduced to combat what is going on with Ottawa and just the general um, lack of any sort of a relationship there, uh, but also gives new powers to rewrite provincial laws without passing legislation to do so. Not sure if any of this is still legal, but to get his thoughts, let's bring in Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you are too. So your thoughts on this, uh, Peter, um, obviously Daniel Smith's painting this as a battle between uh, Alberta and Ottawa. Obviously, there's, there's no shortage of history there uh, about the inability to, to get along and such. But obviously, this comes with other underlying uh, powers. Is this even legal? Can this even pass? Will this, will this pass the mustard? Well, I mean, it probably can pass uh, through the Alberta legislature because uh, Daniel Smith has a, a strong majority uh, in the legislature, uh, although I mean, even today, when you know deputy premiers are being asked about this law, a number of them claim to not know actually what's in it. So, you know, it may it may be quite changed by the time it comes out the other end. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a number of uh, of constitutional issues in it, which will be, I think, quite you know controversial. It gives the Alberta cabinet a, a high degree of power to change laws without going back to the legislature to to get them changed uh, to amend them unilaterally, uh, you know, which is a pretty uh, big uh, departure from Canadian constitutional practice. Probably will be unpopular with with part of the Conservative Party's base because it you know attacks a, a key uh, feature of the rule of law and uh, of sort of liberal political institutions. Um, you know, there's also aspects about uh, instructing uh, bodies of in Alberta to not follow uh, federal laws. Uh, that likely is also not constitutional. But, you know, again, that would be something to, to look at down the, the line. So yeah, likely to pass, maybe not in its current form. But even if it passed in its current form, uh, chances are there'd be uh, some constitutional challenges down the road. So what do you think her objective is here? Because it's packaged in such a way that, you know, we've got to stand up to Ottawa, almost like a, a Quebec does. What's the objective here? Uh, I think it's to channel uh, a sense of uh, alienation in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, a sense that somehow Alberta's promise is being stymied by the federal government. And so you need an Alberta government that's going to, to stand up and say, uh, you know, we're, we're going to protect Alberta's views, you know, regardless of what the federal government says. So I, I think it's a way of recognizing that there's a, a sense of being upset with Ottawa and that that can be channeled politically in, in creating a form of Alberta nationalism. And, and we see something similar in Saskatchewan at the moment, where the Saskatchewan government has put forward a Saskatchewan first act or bill in their legislature uh, you know it's not trying to do some of the more controversial things that uh, this alberta law is doing but i think it's playing to a similar nationalism 
Is that the real issue here, is years and years of neglect um, from Ottawa towards the West? Is that is that what we should be focusing on here as opposed to the sovereignty within a United Canada Act? Again, again, who knows what kind of watered-down version this will come out the other end. But are we missing the point here? It's about a region that feels they're not being represented. Yeah, I think that's at base uh, representation. I think beneath that is a kind of a bigger worry uh, in those provinces that i mean the provinces whose recent wealth uh in the case of saskatchewan and somewhat longer lasting wealth in the case of alberta has been built around fossil fuels and the development of fossil fuels and there's a lot of indications and you know this isn't the federal government but globally that uh, we're moving away from fossil fuels and in fact we may need to do so to prevent a catastrophic global warming so, uh, you know, uh, it's not surprising that, you know, just as people in Ontario get uh, scared of what's going to happen to the auto industry, you know, they likewise have the sense of, of, are we facing some kind of form of decline? So some of it is is unhappiness with the federal government, but I think some of it, too, is channeling a sense of uncertainty in the world and of trying to find some scapegoats to, to deal with the fact that uh, sort of the ease of, of prosperity that came was developing, you know, sitting on top of a giant pot of oil. Uh, it's not necessarily going to to be there in the future. Uh, do you think this will inspire other provincial leaders to try the same? Well, uh, I mean, I think it's a it's a kind of particular situation where you have a very wealthy province, um, but which has a very small population, relatively speaking, in Canada, and so not a whole lot of political leverage, you know, to lead to this kind of, of response. Uh, there aren't many other provinces quite in in, in that uh, position, but I mean, we have seen other provinces run against Ottawa in various ways. I mean, we remember, you know, in the case of uh, of Newfoundland and and the injunction not to vote for any conservative uh, candidates when there was a a saw off between Ottawa and and the provincial uh, government in in the Harper years. I mean, you you spoke about Quebec at various times. You know, British Columbia has run against Ottawa and said, well, what do we have to in, in common with people over the mountains. So, you know, I think I think there's always incentives for, for governments to do that, but it's a pretty particular situation when you have the concentrated wealth uh, of Alberta uh, and, and, and the sort of political weakness at the same time in terms of the number of seats in Ottawa. Uh, not much time left here, Peter. have to ask you, though, uh, the Prime Minister's response, he said he doesn't want to fight, but nothing is off the table. What does that mean? Uh, well, I think he wants to sit back and wait and see if this just collapses within Alberta, given some of the some of the aspects within that. And, and similarly, maybe wait until the act is actually used, uh, you know, at which point he may decide what sort of response he wants to bring forward. But at the moment, I think he wants to avoid conflict because in a way, that's what Daniel Smith wants, I think, with this, is uh, to give the idea that Ottawa is going to try and stifle Alberta's attempt to uh, exert a, a sense of sovereignty. Peter Graff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the sovereignty within a United Canada in Alberta Act with Premier Daniel Smith. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You don't need me to tell you how difficult it has become with inflation and such. Whether you're buying or renting housing, uh, it, it just seems that uh, prices have gotten out of reach for most people uh, in just trying to get by, just trying to get a place to stay. Again, whether you're renting or purchasing. And a new report from Hamilton Social Planning and Research Council shows that young people are most affected by Hamilton's volatile rental market. And of course, you know, you got to remember this is a city that for the longest time uh, was quite depressed. And, it, it, you know, there wasn't a lot of investment going along on, there wasn't a lot of interest in the city uh say maybe you know 10 20 years ago and such as uh, things changed uh but now of course hamilton has become a hot spot and it is literally exploding and there is gentrification going on it's hard to ignore let's bring in sarah mayo uh, social planner geographic information systems with the social planning and research council of hamilton and with us now sarah thank you for the time i hope you're well I am. Thanks for having, uh, for discussing this important issue. So what do we need to do to create more uh, rental housing in Hamilton? How do we, how do we fix this? Um, rental housing is being created all the time because it's not, 
there are more and more uh, rental buildings starting up finally, like you say, after a lot of disinvestment in the rental housing um, sector, um, lo lots of, of, of years of no investment. We are finally seeing newer uh, uh growth in rental buildings and also secondary units. So people um, renting their basement or uh, or condo uh, owners um, renting out their condos that the, and and so we see a huge growth in in renters. Renters have grown by uh, five times as much as uh, as owners um, since the last census over the last five years. So rental is being created, but the newest rental that is being created is often, you know, the most expensive on the market and youth being new uh, to the market are um, are often, uh, you know, don't have much choice uh, because they, uh, you know, the, the availability is much more in the newer, more expensive units and so are, are, are forced into um, either very expensive units or into uh, situations that may be unsafe with uh, group leases or individual room rentals that aren't covered by the Residential Tenancies Act. So they may be vulnerable. Um, and that's that's sort of what our report uh, highlights. If there's lots of supply, would that bring the prices down? Would not regulate it or um, level it out Well, I, it, the, the, the housing market has a lot of issues that are a lot more complex than yeah. supply uh, that, that then um than supply and demand but we do see for instance one very clear example of supply and demand is is the opposite so like i said there is more rental being built but it's often not the rental that people want so bachelor units uh, were often the most popular for young people because they're small and cheap. Mm -hmm. And those units have quickly have have are really on the decline in Hamilton. And the price of bachelor units has more than doubled um, in the last 20 years. So we do see the supply and, di uh, and dem demand dynamics there. There is a demand for bachelor units, but but we're losing them. Uh, one by one, somewhat to the Airbnb market, uh, but the city is going to be clamping down on that. Um, at least that's their plan. We'll see if council uh, adopts their the, the proposed bylaw when that comes, uh, and hopefully that will bring back some bachelor units back to the uh, residential ten uh, rental market. Uh, you said that in the last 20 years, the, the demand has doubled. Uh, we also know that in the last 20 years, Hamilton wasn't what it is right now, and, and prices were quite depressed uh, over the last uh, decade or so. Now they have caught up or, uh, you know, or have taken off as other surrounding areas have. Is, how much of this is about gentrifica uh, gentrification, the city just growing and becoming more expensive? Um, the, the the housing crisis that Hamilton is experiencing is, to a certain extent, Canada-wide. Uh, all cities in Canada have seen um, large increases in um, in in rents, and in mm -hmm. in cities like Toronto, it means that young people are not living there anymore because it's just so unaffordable. And we're starting to see that in Hamilton that people. Um, and like you say, how, that, that people have to leave the city to find more affordable housing when affordable housing used to be one of the driving forces that created uh, Hamilton's kind of uh, upswing because it attracted a lot of young people, a lot of artists, a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and now we're, 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 we're kind of sacrificing that, that advantage. We, we, we don't have it like we used to. So what what are you suggesting? Uh, I'm reading in front of me rent control regulations. What does that mean? How does that work? Okay, so yeah, rent control uh, is uh, being eroded. For instance, right now in 20 uh, units that are first developed as rental units after 2018 are no longer subject to rent control. And so landlords can increase the, the rent as much as they want. Um, and that is... Um, Youth are disproportionately, our, our data shows, in newer um, buildings and newer apartments. So they're disproportionately not protected by um, rent control. Sarah, um, how do you... How do you, how do you? problem in Ontario is we don't have rent control between tenancies. In Quebec, you can appeal the rent 
uh, increase be from the last tenant if uh, if you think it's unjustifiably high and landlords have to tell you what it was in the standard lease. So it's um, there's a lot more there's more power given to tenants to um, to have some power against uh, landlords who want to exploit the current housing crisis uh, for their own profit. Sarah, I'm old enough to remember when rent controls came in the first time, and I can very, very visibly remember when that's when they stopped building apartments. Uh, there used to be plenty of apartments around. People would build rental units. Then rent control came in, and nobody was building a, a, a apartments anymore because it wasn't profitable for them. And even if you got into a low uh, a rent building, a rent control building, you often had to pay a key fee to the landlord, which is extra $1,000 under the table, and even to get in. So how how do you balance rent control and still stimulating growth so people actually build there's, rent buildings? There's, um, there's definitely evidence that rent control is not the damper on um, on building of rental. And in fact, we have a report we did a few years ago comparing Hamilton and Quebec City. Quebec City has uh, Quebec has has much better rent control system and uh, in terms of more tenant protections. Um, and they have uh, many more renters and a huge growth in rental. Um, in rental. So what's the difference, um, Sarah? Uh, so in, why is it Quebec, working? One... Rental, the building of, of rentals is is huge in Quebec. So so why is it working in Quebec and not Ontario? So why is it not here then? Because we have uh, a system where ha landlords have a lot of power. In, in Ontario, we have many more corporate landlords. In Quebec, it's a lot more dominated by small landlords. And, um, and, and so we as tenants and allies of tenants across Ontario have to uh, push our representatives to better protect renters, including um, young people who are, who are most um, vulnerable to this um, to, to the changes in the rental market going on right now. And the rental market is so different than it was 10 years ago. And youth, um, you know, really need more support to protect them from, from um, exploitative situations. One way it has changed, as you've just said, is that there's a lot, there seems to be plenty of rentals, whereas 10 years ago there wasn't. So, uh, again, that's something we'll have to discuss uh, at greater length. Sarah Mayo with us, Social Planner, Geographic Information Systems with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Sarah, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I'm not on holiday, but I will say this. Ben did not know when he played that song that this, but I work in my basement. My office at home is in my basement, so I yep. don't have a lot of light a lot of the time. I have a big computer monitor, and oftentimes during the day, I will put on a live video stream from some tropical place. <laughs> a beach <laughs> just so it feels like you're outside. And you know where I was watching today. I had a live where? stream from Key West, Florida, right wow. where that right where that song was from. So he had no idea, but it was perfect. There so you go. are you? <laughs> now I'm getting in the mood. Yeah. So what, what do you normally look at? Then what? What? What are we? I, I might do this. What, what I'm you, not looking. It's just it's you put on. It's just a nice like. It's a camera that's showing. Is it live beach. or recorded? Could be either. YouTube has some amazing <laughs> ones. They're like twelve hour loops of a beach, I, and it just I, it, it just you know what it's the, it's we're into the winter now. It feels great to at least feel like you're on a beach. Is that of. like the fireplace on my TV? Is yes. That what that, yes. Except it doesn't crackle. Oh, <laughs> all right. It sounds better with the surround sound out. It does. I you must gotta, add, you got to do something. All right, we had this discussion uh, yesterday about uh, you know getting nowhere with the housing situation, getting nowhere with healthcare. Um, just going around in circles because nobody wants to do anything new. Um, I was just talking to the uh, Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton and talking about how difficult and how high the rents are going in Hamilton, especially for young people, saying supply is not the issue, it's the price. Whereas if you add more supply, we all know <laughs> the price goes down because you can get them anywhere, uh, whether it's oranges or apartments or such. Uh, I'm not a fan of rent control. I'm old enough to remember this. I'm old enough to remember in the 1970s when they were building apartments left, right, and center. I remember living in, in one. And, and then they introduced rent control, and everybody stopped building apartments because there was no money in it for them. And if you were lucky enough to get into a rent-controlled building, you often had to pay the landlord what is called a key fee, which was you know usually a few thousand dollars under the table to even...
even get you in the building to pay uh, that low rent. It's amazing how we just keep coming at the same thing with the same same problems with the same uh, same method of, of correcting them, but no success. Uh, uh, look, I would invite. Uh, a professional economist to pipe in on this one because they would be able to speak to this better. But uh, generally, my understanding and what I've always been taught and what when we talk on our show or my show with economists, uh, the supply and demand thing is true. The, the, the catch, it seems to be, is that the supply and demand situation works if you're in a system that is allowing it to work. In other words, you don't have a ton of other external influences. In a, in a pure situation where I offer a greater supply to meet the demand, the price will go down. But what if you start adding all kinds of other interferences that's where this thing so so when the person says well it may not necessarily supply may not bring it down maybe not because of other stuff that's going on but what that means then is that governments have to find a way to get out of the way so they're not stopping extra supply from satisfying the demand to bring down the prices it should work unless you're doing something to screw up the system uh, it amazes me uh, that, you know, if if nobody in the private sector is going to do something, it's up to the government to do this. Um, when you get government housing, to me, this is a recipe for disaster because every elected body that comes in doesn't want to put money into it because there's no profit out of it. There's nothing for them. Um, and then we just end up with with people complaining that they're not being served, that well, not, their units aren't being looked after. Scott, where where have we seen massive government-built housing projects done? I don't just mean in Canada. I mean around the world. Like the old Soviet Union, giant apartment blocks. Yeah. And you look at video of that. They're not exactly today, they're not exactly luxury. Like they're, no. they're often in bad shape. I mean, you could argue... Uh, there, there are some slums or ghetto areas where it has been government housing that's been allowed to then fall apart because there's suddenly no funding for this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that government should be helping in places, and there should be ways that government can help. But I, you know, in a lot of ways, I agree with your position, which is um, if you make it so that people can't make a profit. They're not going to be inspired no. to go and build this stuff. And, and somehow we have made developers a bad word. We have yeah. made profit a bad word. Um, why should – and look, I, I'm, I'm not arguing that people should be able to charge, you know, to, to make all the money in the world they want. I mean, they can. That's, that's capitalism. But, but also, when did it become a bad thing? If that's your job, if you're a developer and your job is you're making your living that way – why is that different from someone else who's doing a job and being paid for their work? I, I understand there are nuances and there's other things and people say, yeah, but they're overcharging, they're gouging. Okay, okay. But somehow, but profit is not a bad word by itself. Greed is a bad word. Profit is not a bad word. Good point. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to give us the last word. This one comes courtesy of Mr. Lowe, who says, Let us embrace this last month of the year with the spirit of the season through compassion, friendship, and by helping those in need.